The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. So good morning to everybody. Um, very nice, uh, warm day, a bit like Sri Lanka actually, because <laughs> it's 30 degrees today, I think, so it's pretty close. So, and this is, if you're wondering who I am, the people here probably not so much, but online they may think, who is this? <laughs> and I am Ajahn Nisarano, and I'm an Australian monk who uh, was born in Perth, actually, and ordained with Ajahn Brahm about, uh, well, my first ordination, novice ordination, 27, 26 years ago. Uh, so, so I've been a monk, a fully ordained monk, 25 years. And for 13 and a half of those years, I was living in Sri Lanka. And uh, I've just come back from Sri Lanka, actually. <laughs> Um, and had uh, that was a marvellous experience, eight years living in a cave on the side of a mountain and going for my arms round into the village every morning, about six in the morning, a bit after six. And uh, so, and then uh, having uh, uh, returned to Australia, I've, I've now become the uh, senior monk at Newbury Buddhist Monastery. So uh, this monastery is about 100 kilometres from the city and, uh, and uh, we have monks and nuns and I'm the senior monk and we have a senior nun, so it's very good. And so just to, for those people who are wondering, where has he been? <laughs> He's probably been on holiday. I haven't really, even though I went to Sri Lanka for about five weeks. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it was a holiday holiday, but it was very enjoyable and uh, it was a very good time meeting Dhamma friends and also giving uh, teachings in English, which was a good way to meet Dhamma friends. Some of them I already knew and some new Dhamma friends. And it's quite interesting... <clears throat> In Sri Lanka, there's quite a quite an interest in Dhamma in English. So this is uh, something that uh, there's quite a hunger for it actually, and not many monks uh, teaching in English in Sri Lanka. And I guess it's because some of the people are more English speaking, and we have the international schools. And some people, English is actually their first language, and uh, so that's part of the reason. And also, I think. The Dhamma that they uh, hear in English is often a little a different angle from what they hear in Sinhala. So I think that's the reason. So it was a very good time. I say to people, it was too good. Because <laughs> you feel like staying, don't you, when something is very, very good. And uh, so that now this is here and uh, Sri Lanka is there. When I was there, this was there and Sri Lanka was here. So this is the nature of our lives. We're moving on constantly in life. <laughs> and uh, that's the way it is. And so it's very nice to be back here and to see Dhamma friends again and to be uh, teaching in English. <laughs> again, I'm a bit limited in that respect. So I'd like to give a teaching this morning that uh, I've been teaching quite a bit, actually using uh, quite a bit in Sri Lanka and even yesterday because I think it's so important for our understanding of the human condition and how we can work with that human condition. And of course, I remember my first teaching in Theravada. I first of all met Buddhism through Tibetan Buddhism, going to a Tibetan Buddhist center. And when I was at that center, 
um, one of the people who was um, going to it said, oh, you should go to um, Nolamara, to the Dhammaloka Buddha Centre. Oh, there's some very good monks there. Actually, it wasn't Nolamara then. It was another place. It's the predecessor. So I went and I met uh, the monks that were there. And I think you probably know some of the monks that were there, Ajahn Brahm. <laughs> but his predecessor was, he was the senior monk then, Ajahn Jagaro. And of course, he was uh, very uh, popular and uh, um, here, and he gave a lot of time and teaching here when he was a monk. Ajahn Jagaro was from Melbourne, and he was instrumental in this centre being like it is. I was here as a layperson. And when we got the center, and he was like, wow, he's like a cyclone of energy and organizing everyone to, you know, to get the center together. Because we had the separate house and the, the hall separate and integrating the two and making a lot of changes very quickly and good changes. In fact, if he were to come back, he would say, it looks pretty unchanged from when I left. It's quite true, because he set it up pretty well. He was very good, very clear-sighted. And you see that with the uh, monastery in Western Australia, Ajahn Brahm's monastery, and the Buddhist Society of Western Australia. Very, very clear understanding of what's needed, and very good. So his first teaching, which really, which I uh, experienced, really captivated me, caught my attention. It's very catchy anyway. The first thing he's saying was, we're all the center of the universe. I thought, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> and then, I don't know if he qualified it, but I qualified in my mind, we're the center of our universe. That's, that's the universe we're the center of. And it's not to say that there isn't a world out there, a real world, as we say, a material world. But we know from uh, all our, from our experience that the take on that world, the way we look at that world can be so different, can't it? I mean, I, sometimes it's absolutely incredible. It's like day and night, you, you're with somebody and the mind state that they have is really so different. Their take on the experience so different. And of course, we all know that's, that happens with ourselves. So some days we are um, feeling a bit down or depressed and the world looks pretty dark and pretty dismal and things look grey. <laughs> or if we are, you know, in a very positive mood, more upbeat, then everything looks welcoming, interesting, something to get into um, and enjoy. So the, the difference in mind state is obviously what's making our universe. And of course, this is, once we identify that, then we can focus on what is creating this universe. And of course, you've got it in one if you thought, what do you think is creating the universe that we experience? The mind, isn't it? It's the mind, it definitely is. And uh, so it's so, um, so obvious to us. And particularly, it reminded me of the, uh, the Buddha gives similes for the five hindrances. This is the quality of the mind when it's got negative got negative uh, qualities in mind and uh, it's uh, it's it's what happens when we're having a um, um, the world is looking dark or the world is looking um, uh, uh, very or we're feeling very restless about the world or we've got a lot of doubts about the world so when the the Lord Buddha gave these really good 
uh, similes that are, are, are nice for the state of our mind, which affects the way our universe looks. If we've got desire in the mind, he said, it's like water that's got dye in it. It's coloured. We're looking through this lens of desire. And uh, we all know this, you know, when people fall in love, for instance, they, they, they just see, you know, oh, beautiful, wonderful, perfect. Of course, later on in the relationship, if it develops, that it's not quite the same, uh, the same uh, sanya or perception coming, coming up. So this is the nature of the mind with a lot of desire in it. And it's also, of course, a, a mind state that's not particularly um, calm or steady. It, it really agitates the mind when we have desire in the mind. It revs up the mind. And, of course, the other one that the Buddha mentions, the simile, is anger. And uh, this he gave as an example was water that's boiling. And isn't that just so appropriate for when we feel angry, we feel like we're boiling. In fact, that's what people often say, oh, I'm really, I'm really boiling with anger. So this is water that's boiling. And then uh, for drowsiness and dullness, he had the uh, image of water covered by water plants. So you can't see the water. It's when the mind has low energy and uh, we, uh, we're just the very contracted sort of mind. We, we, we can't sort of initiate much, when, well, any activity really when we've got this, when we're tired and the mind's closing down. This is not that dissimilar from depression really, isn't it? You know, this sort of feeling that's difficult to motivate ourselves, difficult to get going. And of course, the Buddha's antidote to that is bringing up uh, energy, but that's not easy <laughs> when you're in this very dull place. So that's the water plants covering the water. And the, the fourth one, fourth hindrance, is, is restlessness and worry. And of course, the image that the Lord Buddha uses is water stirred up by the wind. So there's little wavelets going on the water, and so we can't see into it. Because this is the main purpose of meditation, isn't it? Is to see into that water. What's the water? The mind. <laughs> this is what he's using the simile of. So when we've got restlessness or worry, then the water is stirred up, the mind is stirred up. We can't see things clearly. Very interestingly, when I was in Sri Lanka, I met a South African monk who told me that uh, actually the Pali for uh, worry is actually more like fidgeting. And he said to me that the examples that they usually give is playing with your, fidgeting with your, your hands or your feet. <laughs> so it's more like a fidgety sort of mind state is what he was saying. I think it's quite a good point. But it's that agitated, restless energy that can't settle, that's really unsteady. It's the mind that's moving around and uh, can't, uh, can't settle. And of course doubt, the example, the simile the, the Buddha uses for doubt is like mud in water. Made me think immediately of the Yarra River. <laughs> 
isn't it? It's really just mud, money. You can't see into it very. I don't know if you ever see into it. I've never seen into it. So it's water with mud in in it. So you can't see in, into it. So when our mind has a lot of doubt, it's very hard to see clearly because the mind's here, going here and there. It's all a bit murky, and we we're not sure of what's what. But one of the so these similes indicate, you know, how the 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 mind, um, the negative mind states can affect our universe. And, and we obviously, when I mean, there's a lot of desire in the in the mind, the, the mind is really seeing the universe in a different way. And when we're angry, we see it in another way. Everybody is a threat. We've got to deal with them. And, and uh, people sometimes feel like that when they get out of bed on the wrong side. <laughs> Just wonder what side that is. <laughs> And uh, and these other states too, like drowsiness and uh, a dullness in the mind, when we just don't have much energy for for the day, for what we're experiencing, we're a bit closed down, and uh, and dull. And then, as I mentioned, this restlessness and worry or fidgeting <laughs> is what is the way when we are, uh, we are experiencing life, we're looking for something, we want something to satisfy us, but we're not sure what it is. We're always sure what it isn't. No, it's not that. No, no, I want this. No, I don't want that. And it's that sort of mind state. And, of course, doubt too. It means we consume a lot of energy doubting, wondering about what we're experiencing, wondering about who we are, wondering about what life is about, all these things. But one of the nice things with these similes, and I think it sort of comes through with the similes, is that the water and the other qualities that affect it, be it um, dye or boiling or the, the water weed or the mud or the, uh, the wind disturbing the water, they are separate. They are separate, so the mind is affected, say, by these states, but it is not intrinsically uh, taken up with these states. Not, not, they're not part and parcel of the mind itself. And the Lord Buddha uses the... He says in another sutta that these things are like visitors <laughs> to the mind, negative visitors, not the good visitors, the negative visitors, and that they, intrinsically the mind naturally really is radiant. So sometimes people hear that and they think, wow, <laughs> really? Is that the natural state of the mind? And of course, this is where the meditation deep meditation can help us experience that. We call it the pabasara chitta, the radiant mind. And it's something that um, is uh, uh, an extraordinary experience to realize that, that this is the nature of the mind. When it's not affected by these negative qualities, when it's also not disturbed by positive things as well, when it's very still, very steady. And of course we can ask, and I think this is the, the most important question of the day. What, uh, what uh, gives rise to these negative states in our minds? You know, these, um, the dye gives rise to the boiling in the mind. It gives rise to the water plants in the mind when it's uh, really low energy. It gives rise to the um, wind in the mind when everything's blown around, disturbed. All this mud in the mind. What, what's giving rise to that? And of course, 
I think this is very helpful teaching for us, very practical teaching. And, and of course it is, whether we have uh, proper attention or um, we don't have proper attention. I wonder how you say that in another way. Improper attention, that's the, that's the translation. Improper attention. And this sounds, because whatever we pay attention to, this is a very important concept in, in the Buddha's teaching, whatever we pay attention to, this is going to influence the mind. And uh, I'll, I'll read out uh, how the, uh, the Buddha uh, defines this, how he describes this. And this is from a, a sutta called the All the Defilements. It's uh, the, uh, in the Middle Length Discourses, the second sutta. It's a very famous sutta, actually. The Sabhasava Sutta is called Sabhasava in Pali. And it goes, Monks, I say that the ending of defilement is for one who knows and sees, not for one who does not know and see. For one who knows and sees what? And then he says, Proper attention, and of course the Pali for proper attention. Yoni so, manasikara, that's right. And improper attention, ayoni manasikara. When you pay improper attention, defilements arise, and once they, once arisen, they grow. When you pay proper attention, defilements don't arise. And those that have already arisen are given up. So this is very much the power of how we pay attention to things and to really understanding what we're experiencing when we pay attention and seeing the results of, of paying attention. It's basically a very experiential way of looking at life because um, we're experiencing the six senses, the five senses, but it's the mind, <laughs> isn't it? It's the mind which is really interpret interpreting or receiving all this input. And so this is where um, the, we can see whether something is really um, in accord with reality, is in accord with um, wholesome states of mind, right motivation, we call it, is in accord with um, having... Letting go of desire, uh, is it coming from kindness? Is it coming from non-harming, caring, um, having compassion, these things? So if we pay attention to something and we notice, hang on, there's a lot of desire coming up or there's a lot of anger coming up or there's a lot of um, uh, delusion, a lot of self coming up, then we can be sure this is improper attention or unwise, unwise uh, reflection, sometimes it's called, because it's giving rise to these negative things. It's very experiential, and it's pretty easy to tell, isn't it? And uh, I think everybody has the experience that they've read something or heard some news, and wow, they're up in arms, you know, you're feeling angry and upset. And uh, so we can see when we experience something, we can see what the reaction is. And this is very important that we are aware of how our attention, the things we are paying attention to, affect our mind. Advertisers are very, <laughs> very smart about this. And that's one of the things I noticed when, if you, after living in Sri Lanka for 13 and a half years, you come back 
And you see advertising in a very different way from uh, Sri Lanka, actually. The emphasis on physical beauty is just incredible to sell products, you know, beautiful looking women, beautiful looking men. It's all to just sell uh, the products. And of course, it's immediately dragging the mind into improper attention very easily, actually. And that's what the advertisers want, because then you think, yeah, I've got to go out and get that, <laughs> whatever that is. So this is how we can tell whether this is leading to defilements or leading away from defilements. Um, if it's leading to, of course, you know, being kinder, um, being caring, not harming ourselves or others, and looking for happiness in the right place, letting go of looking for happiness out there, that's where we usually hang out, <laughs> looking for happiness in here, then of course that's no problem. That is proper attention. It's leading to wholesome states of mind. So this is how we can tell. So it's a very practical, um, a practical teaching about what's wholesome and what isn't wholesome, what's positive and what's negative. And we can experience that ourselves. I don't think it takes Albert Einstein, actually, <laughs> to tell, you know, when we are giving attention to something, to notice the effect it's having on our minds. And uh, to really to just ask ourselves, well, is this a good thing or not a good thing? And that can be a very, very practical way just to engage um, the effect these things are having on us. And as it were, not going there if it's, if it's a negative uh, reaction or result is coming. And it's the essence, isn't it, of sense restraint. We call it, it's a very important concept in the Buddha's teaching, uh, Indriya Sangara. And it doesn't mean we don't, we, we don't see, hear, smell, taste and touch. That will happen naturally. And it's what we make of it through the mind that it is really the important thing. And sense restraint, the real idea behind sense restraint is if we see the mind going towards an unwholesome mind state, we can pull, we pull back. I will say it's not easy <laughs> once, you, once an unwholesome mind state has, has, has come up. If there's a lot of desire in the mind, the ability to say no is very limited, actually. But if we have Dhamma practice in mind and we can feel happy if we can say no, because no means we have some freedom. Otherwise, we're just sucked into this uh, uh, defilement you know, of desire or aversion um, or whatever is coming up in our experience. So this sense restraint is very, very important. And you can see it on the internet. The internet's made it very, very um, obvious that you can manipulate people's um, uh, perceptions and, and bring up lots of negative emotions in people quite easily. So we need to have this sort of sense restraint. And I call it like um, sense restraint is a bit like health food. We're deciding, no, we've seen this incredible fried thing that we think, oh, great, or this beautiful, uh, luscious, delicious cake, lots of cream. No, no, this is <laughs> we won't have it now. And we go for the health food. We look after the mind, because that's our job as practitioners of the Buddha's teaching. Of human, of being human beings, really, spiritual beings, is to look after the mind. And this is making sure that these negative, uh, the 
the attention we give uh, is giving, uh, we're giving attention to things that bring up wholesome states of mind, not negative states of mind for us. So this is very, very important. It's in really empowering us to recognize what's going on and not be manipulated by the defilements, these negative qualities in the mind, by desire, aversion, and all the other qualities, restlessness, worry, and so on. So this is a, a way that we can train ourselves. We can just look at what we're experiencing and see the results. And this is, as I say, it doesn't take Albert Einstein <laughs> to work this one out. And of course, it, re it rests on this power of reflection. The, uh, the Lord Buddha mentions there's two powers, of, two powers, he calls them. One is the power of reflection, and one is the power of development. And it sounds amazing when you call it a power of reflection, but what is the power of reflection? It's knowing that our actions by body, speech, or mind are actually negative, they're unwholesome, and then inclining towards the wholesome actions of body, speech, and mind. So it's really this power of reflection just to be able to realize what's going on. Is this wholesome or is it unwholesome? Is it positive or is it negative? And uh, if you're wondering what the other power of development is, it sounds great, doesn't it? It's a very short suitor, but very, very important. The power of development is the seven factors of awakening, developing those seven factors of awakening. What are they? They are mindfulness, isn't it? And then there's the uh, Dhammavichya, which is the investigation of the state of the mind, wholesome qualities, unwholesome qualities. Then virya, this is energy. And then from that, this joy, incredible energy in the mind, uh, which feels very bodily. And then tranquility, pasadi, this is when the body is really calm and maybe, you know, we're not aware of it at all. And then from that, of course, we get the mind coming together, samadhi. And then from that, Upeka, looking on, and this is with mind that can just see without defilements what's going on. It can contemplate, really contemplate and see the nature of reality. So they're the seven factors of awakening. Probably people think, that's great, let's go on to that. <laughs> but of course, the power of reflection it takes a lot of, uh, has to have quite a degree of self-awareness, doesn't it? Because sometimes we, we can delude ourselves or be unaware or we can um, almost lie to ourselves. Oh, no, 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 this is not a you know, desire or this is not really anger. I remember years ago when I was, uh, I was an um, Anagarika at Ajahn Brahm's monastery and I was one of the other Anagarikas, he was really angry and his face was red. And I, I said to him, oh, gee, you're really upset, you're really angry. And he said, no, 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 I'm not at all. And I thought, wow, he doesn't. And I, I, I thought, no, he's not lying, actually. He just is completely unaware of it, which is really amazing. Our uh, ability for self-deception or fooling ourselves is quite extraordinary, actually. Yeah, so we need for this reflection to really work, to be really honest with ourselves uh, and about ourselves and to... Um, 
also to have uh, good friends in the spiritual life, and this is uh, Kalyana Mitas, who support us and can help us, encourage us uh, to look and develop this more of this self-awareness. Because I have met practitioners, I think, haven't got too much self-awareness, and that's going to make the spiritual path very difficult. Because if we're not aware of what's going on inside, and we, our, the spiritual path is actually in here, then it's going to be hard work, actually. We're not going to be able to connect things together. We really don't know what's going on for us, and therefore how we, uh, how we should practice the spiritual path becomes pretty unclear how we apply it. And I've seen this, and I think most of the people, Sri Lankan people, have seen this themselves. There are people who know the Dhamma, a great deal about the Dhamma. They may be professors <laughs> in, in uh, uh, Buddhist studies or whatever, or Pali studies, and they can argue about it and get upset about it and all this. And of course, when you, when you see, when you, you witness something like this, you realize, wow, that's not Dhamma. They're missing they're missing the Dhamma. Even though they've got a very good understanding, they're not practicing it. They're not living it. And what a shame, you know, to have all that enormous um, uh, wealth of information, of guidance for the spiritual path and not to be able to t make advantage of it and just use it for debating. <laughs> I think it's missing the point. And really, one of the best uh, teachings of this Yoniso Manasikara in action is the teaching the Lord Buddha gave to his son, the Venerable Rahula. And this is, uh, how do we say it? Amba, Amba, Ambalatika, Ambalatika uh, Rahula Ovada Sutta, number 61 in the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle length discourses. And in that, his uh, son had a very interesting sutta. He's only seven years old, so, you know, quite, quite young. And uh, his son had been telling, uh, according to the commentaries, uh, lies to, to people. And so the Buddha came to give him this teaching about lying. It's really heavy, actually, <laughs> really quite a heavy teaching at the beginning anyway. And uh, evidently his son was, uh, according to the commentaries, when people came and they said, oh, is the Buddha here? And he'd say, no. And he was, in fact, here in the monastery. And the reverse, too, sometimes people would come and say, is the Buddha here? And say, yes, yes, you know, playing around like a little boy of seven. And uh, he wasn't in the monastery, so he was lying. And uh, the Buddha gives his teaching that even to, to lie for fun, for humor, is not to be done. And he gives it, he really is very, very heavy about that. Because when he arrives, he's... His son has the water ready for him to wash his feet and everything. And he uses the, the, the vessel, the little um, bowl that he's using to wash his feet. And he throws the water away and he says, this is like somebody who can tell a deliberate lie. They've thrown away the qualities of a spiritual person. <laughs> and then he turns it upside down. And, this is, and he says, this is like a person who tells a deliberate lie. They've turned the spiritual life upside down. And he has it the other way up. And this is like a person who tells a deliberate lie. They're empty of the qualities of a spiritual person. It's really quite heavy, really. But it's making the point, I'm sure, Rahula, his son, 
didn't forget this teaching <laughs> easily and very dramatically because when, you, when you're teaching young people, especially children, you have to do something very physical, don't you? It's no good to sort of give a lot of theory. You've got to give something that really they can connect with. And I'm sure Rahula did and went, wow. <laughs> so, but the important thing with that sutta really is that it gives us a way of looking at this uh, wise reflection or proper, uh, what was it called? Uh, the, the way of looking at things properly. And uh, it's Yoniso Manasikara. Uh, and it's, it's a good way of actually a good, uh, um, uh, a good set of teachings for looking at life and responding to life in an ethical way, in a good way. And it's a very easy experiential way of gauging things in our life, whether they are uh, are good things or not. And it's it's using reflection, that ability of the mind to reflect before we act, before we speak, and if, say, even before we think. That's an interesting idea, isn't it? And uh, the Buddha says that we should reflect, does this, what I'm about to do or say or even think, does this lead to harm or benefit for me, for others, or both? Pretty comprehensive, really. And so this is a, a really important thing. And of course, you know, if we have improper attention and we are finding a negative state of mind coming up, immediately we can say, back off, <laughs> back off, if we can pull away from that. Don't go there. And if it's a, a negative state of mind that's hurting us, that's one thing. But if it's hurting another person, we want to say something really cutting, um, then we're to back off again. And if it's going to lead to harm for both ourselves and others, then definitely not go there. But of course, if it's leading to benefit, no worries for ourselves, for others, for both. That's great. And that's, so that's easy in a sense to, to determine if something's leading to harm. We can fool ourselves, of course, and I talk a little bit. One of the things that really fools us is this sense of I, <laughs> me we take things really personally and so it can really skew what we think is uh, of harm to ourselves and to others and what we think is of benefit to ourselves and others you know we might think oh this is something really good for me but it's actually hurting some other person and uh, so uh, it can really this i'm me my mine myself can really skew our um understanding our awareness. And the second, second uh, criteria that the Buddha uses is, is it coming from a wholesome or unwholesome intention or motivation? This is really crucial. Where is it coming from? You know, Is it coming from a mind of greed, desire, wanting to get? I don't care if it, who, who gets hurt, but just to get. Or is it coming from a mind of anger, ill will? You know, uh, and or is it coming from a strong sense of delusion, not really um, a sense of self, or not a very good sense of reality, actually, or not? You know, is it coming from a good place and a good place, or, or right intention, right motivation? And the Buddhist teaching is to let go of desires, desires for sense pleasures, sensory experience. Look inside instead of outside. 
we'll always have a bit of a mixture in reality. We're, we're looking for, we've been looking for our happiness out there in the world for ever so long, all our lives in samsara. So, but we know that the spiritual life is here inside, and so we'll be looking for happiness in the right place. If we have that right intention of not following desire, not being slaves to desire, getting free of that and finding real happiness, satisfaction and meaning inside. And the second quality of right motivation, of course, is this uh, kindness. We call it, uh, the Buddha calls it avyapada. So it really covers any positive emotion you can think of, really. But the classic one, we say, is metta or, or kindness, friendliness. Um, it's also compassion you could include and joy with other success and uh, success or good qualities and a very and acceptance of ourselves and other people in a kindly way, not not out of that sense of oh well they like that yeah <laughs> you know sort of a cold uh, acceptance and so any of these positive qualities that is that is the uh, aviapada non ill will and the last one. Uh, Avyahinsa is a right a motivation that's coming from not harming, not harming ourselves, not harming others, in, and being the opposite, really, being caring, compassionate, and also understanding, you know, this upeka, this quality of understanding that each and every one of us is the way we are at this moment because of all the causes and conditions in our lives. This is how we are at this moment. And uh, if we can accept this moment, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean we can't change in future. But this moment has arrived. We're like this, they're like that. There's no point in complaining. Even if we're not in a good state, they're not in a good state. We can uh, accept that this is how it is at the moment. So that's the second one, checking up on the motivation, where we're coming from. And the third one that the Buddha uses uh, to check up on our actions of actions, our speech or our thought, is what were the results? What were the results of it? And of course to see if it led to painful results or pleasant results. And then of course the wise thing to avoid, to not do that action or that speech that's lead, that in future that leads to um, painful results. And uh, if it was pleasant, no matter, you know, one can speak or act like that as much as one likes. So these qualities, um, uh, so this is really the, the Buddha's uh, way we can apply this Vyoniso Manasikara, proper attention and avoid improper attention. It's, uh, it's easy, it's, it's uh, something that all of us can do in our lives. And it's, as I said, it's experiential. So we can just check up on what's coming up for us. When we give attention to something through sight, through our ears, through, our, um, uh, through all the senses, but particularly through the mind, that's the mind that's really coming up with these uh, reactions. And it's within our ability to say no. If we, if we see it's hard to say no to some of these defilements that are coming up, disturbing the mind, disturbing the water, as it were, the simile that I used for the mind. It is within our power to do that. So we can take this uh, teaching of the Lord Buddhas and use it that 
proper attention, improper attention, and to apply it in our lives like his son, he advised his son, I don't know if he did it, but he probably did, <laughs> advised his son to do, how to reflect so that we can uh, act in a way that doesn't increase the harmful uh, experiences that we have ourselves or others have, that we come from a wholesome place, not an unwholesome place, and we see the results of our experience, whether it was our action of speech, our action or speech or thought. We just see what it's leading to. So I encourage everyone to give it a go. <laughs> I think we're all doing this already, but it just makes it a little bit more concrete when you hear you know, the teaching of the Lord Buddha. You hear it, it's much very clear. It's one of the things, the qualities of the Buddha's teaching is clarity, incredible clarity. If you read the commentaries at all, they're not the same quality. <laughs> they haven't got that clarity. They've got much more of an academic feel where they bring in lots of stuff and, uh, you know, uh, lots of definitions and all this sort of thing. The Lord Buddha is very clear and very... He knows just how much to give people and what will be useful, what will be practical, and what will be overload. <laughs> so I'd like to finish there, and uh, uh, if there are any questions, comments, or complaints, you're welcome. As long as you complain with a good mind state. <laughs> Is that it? Yeah. Any questions from the floor? Yes. Hi, hi, John. Nisarano, is it? Yeah, that's right. Okay, yes. sorry, this is my first time. Yeah. Uh, I was just wondering, would you be able to um, talk a little bit more about how to achieve Upeka? I believe it's like the fourth Brahma Vihara. Viharas, right. Yeah. Yeah, how yeah. to achieve Upeka. Um, of course, you know, if you read uh, um, what the, the Buddha talks about with uh, Upeka, it's the reflection on karma, isn't it? That we're the owners of our karma, we're heirs of our karma, we're born from our karma, that uh, Karma is like uh, our rel relatives or friends, and karma is like a uh, shelter or protection, uh, sometimes a bad protection, sometimes a good protection, depending on the quality of our karma, really. And that whatever karma we do, for good or for ill, we will be the heirs of it. So that's a reflection on karma. And what that does for the mind is, it, in, in terms of ourselves and other people, when we're doing the Brahma Viharas, uh, developing the Brahma Viharas, I have done guided meditations on it, actually. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Is what it does, it brings a sort of acceptance into the mind. Because to me, the Brahma Viharas are often thought of as balance, and I think that's act absolutely the sorry, Upeka is thought of as balance, and it's absolutely true. When we have that quality of reflecting on on the uh, karma, then we can ex we can be have a very balanced mind. Otherwise, we tend to, um, you know, we we can be very negative about some people and very um, attached to other people. So we have these, uh, which is not a balanced mind. And the Lord Buddha, when he's talking about balance, it's usually to do with the 
the thing, it means a balanced mind is one without a lot of defilement. So that's the reflection on karma can do that for us. But for me, it gives rise to a sense of acceptance. And I think I was just saying it then, acceptance of this moment. You know, uh, uh, if we think we are all products, when we say we're born of our karma, it's actually... It's a very strong statement. We, the way our minds are, and even our bodies, is due to actions um, of by body, speech, and mind, this life and past lives. And you can see it. In, I mean, it's, it's something you can see very easily in a way. You know, the mind really impacts on the body. And I, th I think of um, <laughs> one person in Sri Lanka, she, she was, must have been an archie, a grandmother, and she'd say to the grandchildren when they really got upset and they were really angry and everything, she, she'd say, go and look at yourself in the mirror. And they'd go and look in the mirror and say, oh! Because <laughs> when you're angry, it's not a pretty sight. You know, you're red and the face is all distorted and, and you look, we look like yakas. <laughs> this is a, like a demon in the uh, Buddhist cosmology. So this is, it's obvious that, you know, the way we act and particularly the mind is, is impacting on the body in a, in, in a big way. And a lot of our illnesses, you know, stress is obvious, an obvious one, isn't it? Coming from the mind it affects our health and everything. So this is, uh, we see the power of karma in our lives and in other people's lives too. It's shaping us, who we are, very, very much. It's giving, you know, sometimes people think when they hear this teaching of non-self, well, there is something here, and there is. This is our character and personality coming from, to a large degree, karma and all the influences on, in, on, in our lives, you know, our parents, the media, our friends are very, very powerful, especially when we're young. We're really driven by that, the influence of them very much. So uh, these, these things, um, we can see the impact of karma. And so it allows us, or allows me, when I meet somebody who is maybe uh, not the way I would like, they're really unpleasant, they're angry, they're upset, I just realize, well, that's a product of how they've been thinking and acting. And I can, to a degree, accept it, you know, or just see it as it's nothing to do with me, actually. It's their thing. They're like that. And I'm, I'm the trigger for it. So this uh, uh, upeka is really, for me, is acceptance. And when I do the guided meditation, I focus on acceptance, bringing up that sense of accepting ourselves and accepting others. And uh, then using, and this is, uh, this is what I tried to say too, that upeka is not indifference. This is, they often say it's the um, indifference is the far enemy, I think. You know, no, it's the near enemy, that's right. You know, when people don't care. <laughs> It can look like, uh, you know, they're being equanimous, but they just don't care, thank you very much. But that's not Upeka. Upeka's got a lot of kindness in there and caring. So it's, it is a, a positive mind state. It's not a cold mind state. It's a warm mind state. It's got uh, uh, the, uh, definitely got metta in it, this friendliness, this kindness. But it's also the, the mind state that realizes that things are as they are at this moment. <laughs> I have two 
possibilities. I can say it shouldn't be like this and suffer, or say, well, it is like this and accept. <laughs> and that's the wisdom. I know one of my teachers, um, Ayakema, she always said, Upeka comes from a lot of wisdom, really, understanding how things are at this moment. And it's not a fatalistic uh, uh, acceptance that, that says, well, we can't do anything about anything. And of course we can, there'll be an input. But at this moment, whatever's arrived in this moment, no, can't change it. What's happened has happened. And I know as human beings, I've seen it in myself <laughs> quite often, if something really, well, I consider negative has happened, and I think, oh, no, it shouldn't be like this. And, you know, and of course, this is going to be real big suffering because it's actually fighting with reality. What's happened has happened. And uh, usually, after, hopefully after a short time, I usually think, yeah, this happened. <laughs> Don't go there. You know, just accept that this is how it is at this moment. So there's a lot of wisdom in Upeka. So this is, it's a very, uh, it's, it's one of the uh, highest part, uh, practices of, uh, of the Brahma Viharas, actually. But incredibly important because if we can accept others and uh, and not reject them. This is a very important quality. Like metta doesn't reject people, um, even if they're very unpleasant or whatever. It's very, it's kind and friendly to them. With metta, it doesn't necessarily mean we have to love them or like them, <laughs> but we can be friendly. That we, that's within our scope, yeah, in our abilities. So thank you for that question. You're welcome, yes. thank you. And thank is you. it an online question now? Yeah. Thank you, Ajani Serrano. There is a quite related question online about mind states from Ram. Oh, Ram. Who finds it oh. hard to be compassionate at someone who does wrong mm. to them and mm. feels rage and hate but knows that they should be loving. And so how to orient the mind to be compassionate at people who treat him bad? Yes, yes. I, I think, as I mentioned there, you know, just uh, what if we encounter people like that, um, to have this upeka is, it's not easy, but to have this sort of acceptance, they are like that. But also, you know, really, particularly if we, uh, if we don't know them well, just to, to see, look, I've, I've been a trigger for this person. What is happening is actually a really negative mind state in them. If I react with another negative mind state, then I'm making the bad karma myself as well. I'm getting involved in this. Uh, when somebody gets angry with us, they, they, uh, or when we get angry with somebody else, it's like we drink poison. We're really churned up and in a toxic way, and we expect the other person to die. <laughs> I think this is a saying on the internet, and I think it's a fantastic saying, actually, because anger is like that. But you can think that in reverse, you know, the other person. Um, and so uh, this, this is one possibility. The other possibility, actually, uh, if, if, is to have metta for ourselves. Do emotional first aid for ourselves, which is to have this kindness and friendliness to ourselves. Calm down. You know, I'm here for you. Don't worry. <laughs> Be really kind. Very kind self-talk in that case. Very handy. And sometimes when we do have that kind self-talk, that friendly self-talk, we can hear some of the words that will come to mind will be people like grandma or, 
or, or an uncle or an aunt or a friend. And uh, if we can be really sensitive, we can hear it. And that tone, that connecting with that person will help calm us down too. And uh, that metta will, will really um, sort of heal the, uh, the, uh, the wound we have at that moment. Help us anyway. So that's good. And never, never try, if we're really upset with something, never try to send metta to them. <laughs> That, that's just not possible when we're in a bad state. It's, we just don't have the wherewithal to, to give them real metta, genuine metta. I know um, one of my teachers talked about cosmetic metta, where we're really upset with somebody saying, may you be happy and well, may you be free of suffering. And in actual fact, we're feeling like, may you die. <laughs> may you have a terrible time. <laughs> that's really what's in the heart, but the, the, this sort of... Uh, this. This meta, cosmetic meta is coming out with things that are just not what's happening at home. <laughs> so thank you for that one. I hope it helps a bit, Ram. So it's not easy. And if, you know, one of the things that's very useful when we're in a very unpleasant, difficult situation is, uh, and this is not easy too, is to not take it personally, but to take it as part of your practice. And this can help. Uh, us, you know, sort of step back a little bit and think, yeah, this is really a practice. This is really a test <laughs> for me. And uh, that reframes the experience because usually we just get sucked into this and we're really into it. How dare they do this to me or treat me like this? And we're really, we're really consumed by it. But when we think, oh, oh, this is good practice, we'll step back a bit, we will step back mentally and then look at it in terms of spiritual practice, in terms of the Dhamma, and deal with it in a different way. Then we can learn from it more than... Well, we'll suffer from it, probably as well, but we'll learn from it. We've got more possibility of learning from it. So that's what I suggest, Ram. So it's, just think of it as a, a test or, uh, um, you know, pra we're practicing the Dhamma. Yeah. In, and this is a hard practice. <laughs> right, is there any other questions from the audience about improper attention, proper attention, and all that? Mm. Um, oh, I just... Oh, hello. Um, Good, morning. I, Good morning. Well, I have another question. It's yeah. linked to anger again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. a theme of the, the yeah. weekend. Anger's a big one for all of us. <laughs> um, but I, I was thinking about activism and anger yeah. and yeah. how the two yeah. seem so closely, well, we think that they're linked because it's like... Being angry drives change. Yeah. Um, and then especially coming up to, well, we've got International Women's Day coming up, which yeah. then um, lots yeah. of events and lots of uh, marches and meetings are coming up, which yeah. then triggers. Yeah. Um, it, even though there's lots of very real injustice. You yeah. Know, I, was at a, I was at a union conference on, on Friday. Yeah. But what, what it also does, is it brings up a lot of really deep-rooted Anger, anger yeah. which can then get directed yeah. at, at at anger and a hatred towards all men, yeah. which is which is a very real thing. But um, as someone like like me, I have anger as a default setting. You know, yeah, just kind of we all there. have we all have our default settings. <laughs> and I, so. I was thinking, oh, you know, I was listening when you said yeah, about the yeah. tendencies and characteristics, and yeah. I was like, maybe this is something that I've just practiced for yeah. a really long time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but I was just wondering, you know, because the anger part is unhelpful in the activism. Yeah, it is, actually. That's um, right. How you can Deal practice or remind or mm. just think about 
not getting to the stage where it, it takes over. Yes, yes. No, that's, that's a very good point because I think activism and anger are often related in the sense that if we are activists in any field, whether it be the environment for peace, for uh, climate change, whatever it is that we're an activist for, often we can get a lot of energy from anger. But it's not, um, as, as you would, would, can clearly see, it's not constructive, really. It's actually uh, churning us up and it's making when we have use anger in connection with activism what it what it does do it deactivates our wisdom our clarity <laughs> when we're angry anyone here get very clear when they are angry and the, uh, you know just know exactly what needs to be done no it all goes out the window it's it's a very a very obvious factor that uh, but what um, uh, anger does bring out it's a high energy state so it does bring energy to whatever we focus on but it's not a, a constructive energy and to me the uh, the one that that stands out for is exact is the contradiction of fighting for peace you know when people say I am fighting for peace you think hang on. <laughs> Isn't this fighting the opposite of peace? And I remember, I tell this story quite often, I was involved with the Quakers for quite a few years in Western Australia, and one of the elderly Quakers, Mary, she told me about, I think I met these peace activists, and she said to me, one, she said, after she'd met these peace activists, they're so unpeaceful <laughs> because they're so angry. They're motivated by anger. So in reality, we need to develop the qualities we want to uh, promote as well. But anger is a factor that will uh, in inhibit, reduce our wisdom and clarity big time. But it will give us energy and, um, you know, motivate us. But it's not a constructive energy that will really, really build. And also, at the end of the day, you know, you can feel this. Uh, you have to live with that emotion, you know, that anger. And it really burns us out. And it feels really unpleasant inside as well. And as I say, it's uh, that um, uh, quotation that I made about Anger's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. We're revved up. The other people may, may not care at all. You know, they may not be affected by it. But we're really churned up. And so we're actually abandoning our clarity and wisdom and, and seeing what needs to be done, what's the best way to go. So this is a, it's a natural thing um, in the world, you know, this connection between anger and activism. Because people think in order to get things done, you've got to be really angry. But I don't think that's really the case, actually. It actually leads to more complications, actually, in, in the end, you know. Then you end up with, for instance, in this case, reaction from men who, who say, no, they're so angry with us, you know, and all this sort of thing. And, and then, you know, retaliation, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, a, it's not a, a wholesome quality. It's definitely... Um, like improper attention, isn't it, really, in terms of the Buddha's um, uh, teaching, you know, because it's not going to lead to that steadiness, to that peace inside, which allows us to go deeper and deeper and find happiness and wisdom in the mind within, you know, and be of benefit to a lot of people, you know. 
So uh, I think the best ex- positive, I'm trying to think of a positive example. Mahatma Gandhi was probably a good example of somebody who was non-violent. And I think he was in himself too. I, I, I haven't read his autobiography and so forth. But I think in himself he was, he was a very peaceful person. And um, even though he was an activist, <laughs> certainly was, and he achieved the result. <laughs> Uh, and he paid the price, didn't he? Really, because he was assassinated um, for his, you know, for his success. And uh, but he achieved it, and he was an activist. But he wasn't coming from anger, I would say. Not hundred percent sure because I, I don't know his life very closely, yeah, in detail. So thank you for that question. Nice to see you here, and yesterday too at the retreat day. So I think that's probably where we can. Uh, finish off I think is that it now it's time it's now uh, yes just after quarter to 11 here in Melbourne and this is time for the shared meal (laughs) so you're all welcome to come next door at uh, 11 o'clock for that shared meal and for those who would like to we can pay respects to the Buddha Dhamma and Sangha to uh, finish off that's it